right. Thank you. Um, let me come with you today. Today, we just uh, very grateful to be here. Very grateful for everything that Hope Church has done for us. Uh, my wife Elizabeth is here, and myself. We have four kids, and uh, we are blessed to live in Colorado City. Not many people probably say that, but we truly believe that that God has put us there for a very specific reason, and uh, He's just designed us for that area, and we're so grateful. Um, David had mentioned that we bought a house out there in Colorado City, the first non-FLDS person to ever purchase a house out there. And we were blessed in another way because it's, at that time, it was the least desirable place to live in America. So we were able to buy a house for very cheap. Uh, we bought a 6,000 square foot house for $120,000. I don't know if there's anything around here for that kind of price. No, probably not. <laughs> I've seen real estate around here and it's, it's crazy. But um, God has just been good, so good in so many ways. In fact, we were not even able to have children until finally coming to Colorado City. And for whatever reason, drank the water or what it might be, we have now four children. And uh, ages six to two, so they're a handful. Um, but they're great. Uh, we love them. And we... Uh, but we did decide that we are done. We have four, and that's, that's plenty for us and what we can handle, so it's been good. But again, my name is Brody. Um, I live in Colorado City, Hilldale area. They call it Short Creek. Um, and uh, we've been there for now eight years, and for the past two years, Hope Church has partnered with us to help plant the first Christian church in Colorado City. Um, in fact, you guys will be out there. Uh, this coming in a couple of weeks, I believe, and then also in the summer. And in fact, the last two summers, you've been out there with us and helping us do a major outreach. In fact, it's the largest outreach that we have ever done. Um, it's, we've had 600 plus to like 800 people that come on those, that, those two events that you guys have done. It's the most by far that we've ever had at any of our events. And as a result of those events, a couple of weeks after the last one that, we put, that you guys helped us with in August, a family, a former FLDS family came out there. There was a man, his two wives, and ten children. And they actually, I remember them walking into church, and they just kept coming. And they kept coming. And it was so great to see them because uh, such a large family took up a significant part of our small room. And it was nice. that We got a chance to talk with them after the fact and uh, after the service. We even invited them to our house uh, a couple of weeks later. And it was there that we really got to know them a little bit better. And after dinner, I mean, we spent a long time. It must have been at least probably three hours that we spent with this family. And he commented to me about something somebody had said in the service that he attended. And the person came up to me at the service and was rejoicing that somebody got saved. And he, so at my house, he, he says to me, well, what is this saved all about? And so I began to t tell him about what it means to be saved from our sins um, through Jesus' blood and um, it was just a great opportunity to be able to minister to him and share with him the gospel. Um, and, you know, we had a lot of good, good discussions, and we we're having people that come uh, regularly, newer people that come and get a chance to get to know them as well. Um, but we find it, it, it is more of our responsibility to be able to tell people who Jesus is and what is the church and who is God. And so much of that has, needs to be redefined because... The way that, that those ideas were prostituted essentially to these people so that the FLDS church could actually attain much of their property and much of their, even their wives and their kids and those sorts of things. So now we are kind of in a way of redefining what those terms mean. So it's not so easy for us just to come up 
come into the community and say, hey, we want to start a church. Why don't you come? Because to them, church is something that people used against them um, to be able to gain uh, whatever benefit they could from the people. And so a lot of the people who have left that religion want nothing to do with church. And rightfully so, one can imagine. I remember one story in particular. Uh, We had just moved into town, and I made contact with a family who had left the FLDS. And... This family, uh, a man and his second wife were told, and all of her kids were told to separate from each other and go repent from afar. So they decided to disobey the directive of the prophet. Now, they decided they would still leave, but they didn't know what they would do. They didn't want to separate, so they went, and they just kind of meandered their way through Utah, then into Idaho, and then back down into Utah, until eventually they were picked up by HOH, which is uh, holding out help here in in Draper. but it was interesting as I asked her what it was what was the reason for excommunication. She said that it was because of the death of an unborn child. And I was surprised at that because I had never heard of anybody within the FLDS aborting their children. Uh, but as she began to explain her story, it, she talked about how um, Warren Jeff somehow got record of a hospital record or, or the clinic record that she actually miscarried one of her children. And Warren Jeff was... Uh, blaming that on unrepentant sin. And because of that, she was kicked out of the religion. She was told to leave her family. And she was essentially kicked out to a world that she had never even experienced, not probably a day in her life. And to her, the, whole, the world outside was always against her. And that's what they've been taught for, for a long time. So they labeled her a murderer and an outcast. And they left her to fend for herself. Now, these kinds of stories are not unique. In fact, there are a lot of those very same stories and even other ones that may even be worse. So one can imagine what it would be like for someone like us to come into the community um, and um, who have been really oppressed by a religious system to start a church. So we realized that maybe the best thing that we could do is begin by building relationships with people. So over time, we started a thrift store. And then we started a community center. And then eventually we started a youth center. And through those various means, we were able to meet a lot of people and their needs. In fact, at our youth center, we were regularly having kids, 40 to 50 kids that come every Tuesday. And we get multiple opportunities to share with them the gospel through biblical lessons that we have provided for them. And those are all voluntary. So 90% of those kids getting those lessons have never even heard of the gospel. So it's a really great opportunity for us. But because of investments like your church and others around, we have been able to actually a year and a half ago start the first Christian church in Colorado State. And we named it Community of Grace. And we tell them we're not a community of law-keeping people. We're not focused on keeping the law. We are focused on grace. We are righteous by grace of God. No other reason in our lives. So today I want to talk about a little bit about relationship and how God desires and delights in using unlikely people at unlikely times to accomplish his perfect purposes. And I'm going to use the story of Ruth to kind of intro that story. I'm not going to go through the whole thing, just the first chapter, part of it. And I want to show you how I think this shows us that God uses a lot of relationships that sometimes we don't even think about to bring the gospel or bring um, salvation to a lot of people. So I'll be, I'll be focusing on that. But, you know, as, as I was thinking about it, I think when, when I approach Colorado City, I think that sometimes we may, I feel inadequate for the job that God has given me. And I understand that missions is about bringing people into a relationship with God who formerly did not know him. But the people that I'm speaking with have heard of God and he's been mis- misunderstood by them. 
But these people don't want a message about God. They, in fact, I would say, are hostile to the message of God. And maybe you find yourself in the same situation. Maybe you're in a family where you have come out of that and you have embraced the Jesus of the Bible. And maybe the people that are in your family think you're ridiculous for wanting to go to church and that you found God. And yeah, that's good for you, but don't let me know about it. We're tired of it. Or maybe you're at a job where the people within your, your spheres of influence or the people in your job don't want anything to do with God either. And in fact, they may make fun of the idea of coming to a church or something like that. But I think that that's why I think this message is for you and it's for me. Because we're called to be disciple makers no matter the situation that we find ourselves in. Because God delights in using unlikely people in unlikely times to accomplish his perfect purpose in us. So the story of Ruth begins in one of the worst times in Israel's history, to give a little bit of the background. In fact, it begins in the period of the Judges. We've all heard of that. It's in the Old Testament, maybe. We've heard of it. The book of Judges is a cyclical story of God's blessings that are often followed by the bad decisions. They get used to it, and so they kind of neglect God. They even follow after other gods, which then ends up causing um, curses or uh, other foreign influences coming in and overpowering. And then other things like famine in the land. And it just seems like this cycle that Israel is constantly in. God pre presents another judge. Then all of a sudden things change. They come back to God only to find themselves slipping away yet again. And it's just this big cycle of prosperity and then famine. And in the book of Genesis, or in the book of Judges, we're told that what the problem of the people was, and it's mentioned a number of times, it's in Judges chapter 21, verse 25, is that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And what does that mean? Except that everybody essentially acted as a king of their own domain. Nobody could tell me what I could or could not do. I do whatever I want. Therefore, I am the de facto king of my life. And there's nothing you can say about it. Well, that's where we begin our story, the book of Ruth. Um... A woman named Naomi, a husband, her husband named Elimelech, find themselves in the midst of this famine time. And let's read on and tell about, talk about what they did. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons, the name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the name of his sons were Melon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judea. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Melon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left with her two son without her two sons and her husband. So the first person that we are introduced to in the story is a man named Elimelech. You have this family, Elimelech, Naomi, and their two sons, Melon and Chilion. And for a woman in those days, they depended heavily on the resources provided by their husbands or the men in their lives to give them sustenance, to give them life. Or else you didn't have much in terms of opportunity if you were a woman in those days. Well, you see, in Elimelech, he, he comes on the scene, and he's the first person we're introduced to. Now, Elimelech's name is interesting. Eli Melech is what it is. In other words, my God is king. So if you think of the backdrop of the judges, all the people in Israel were identifying themselves as king. They did what was right in their own eyes. But Elimelech was different. He was going to change the tide of Israel. He was going to identify that I'm not king of my life. My God is king. 
In other words, the rest of Israel might live as if they are the kings of their own lives, but not Elimelech. But the problem is that Elimelech ultimately fails to trust God at a time when he really needed to. There was a severe famine in the land, and the place that's called Bethlehem, which actually literally means house of bread, there is no bread in the house of bread. So the famine had taken place and over the land, and it was probably devastating. But rather than trust in the eventual provisions of his God, they decide to look for greener pastures, his family. The family moves to the land of Moab, and the results were disastrous, as we've mentioned. First, Naomi loses her husband quickly. And then, over time, her, her sons get uh, Moabite wives, and then they eventually die. So the short-term solution that seemed like a good idea has just turned into a disastrous nightmare. She longs for days of empty barns and hungry bellies, for at least she would have her family back, she thinks. She even comments at the end of this chapter, as she decides to finally head back to Bethlehem, that she left full, but has come back empty. See, I, I see in Elimelech the danger of maybe weak religion, or you might even say weak faith. I named all my kids after biblical characters, and I even named my daughter Faith, because I like the idea of them identifying in a biblical sense. Like, I would like them to become somewhat like those characters or to identify with the Bible as their source of authority in their life. I like the idea of my, my daughter having faith, like a mustard seed. But just because we have a name doesn't guarantee the fidelity of that faith, just like Elimelech. Easy believism often creeps in undetected, and when tragedy strikes... The truth about our commitment to God can no longer hide behind a name. It makes you appreciate sometimes the challenging times in life because it helps you learn more. In fact, listen to what the psalmist says in Psalm 119, verse 67. He says, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. I think in the midst of our trials and hardships, we seem to forget the fact that God loves us and he actually does things for our benefit. Now, we don't have a lot of information about Elimelech, so I'm not going to say too much more about him, that, except that maybe he was, maybe not, but maybe he was a well-intentioned man who just got too caught up in his circumstances. Um, he lives in the house of bread, yet there's nothing to eat. Have you ever felt that way? Maybe you've surrounded yourself with things to bring you happiness and satisfaction, but there is still loneliness for some reason. Or maybe you know all the right answers to all the questions that life might throw at you, but when life really happens, you're just not prepared. The brain is not connecting with the heart. I think that Elimelech represents the security also in human conventions that God is sometimes working to strip away from us. Naomi's basic provisions were intended to be met by her husband and her two sons. But God takes those things away. Why? Because he wants to show Naomi that he delights in providing for her needs. <clears throat> Just like he delights in providing for ours. But I want to go a little bit further in the story. And we want to get into a little bit about Naomi. So let's start back in verse 6 and go to thir verse 13. Then she arose, so the, the family, she's lost her family essentially. She arises with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard that the fields of 
or she heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, Go return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices, and they wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in the womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and bear you sons, would you therefore wait for them to be full grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake. The hand of the Lord has gone out against me. <clears throat> so Naomi is the wife of Elimelech and the mother of those two sons. <clears throat> we are told that not only did her husband die, but her two sons did as well. She essentially sees her situation as absolutely destitute. It seems as if Naomi first invites her daughters to come along. Um back to Bethlehem with her, but she couldn't in good conscience lead them to her and back to Bethlehem because in her mind she knew that she really had nothing to offer them. I can't imagine the kind of turmoil that Naomi was feeling at this time in her life. Uh, what those kinds of circumstances would bring about and what it would cause us to think or do and act. However, I would say that it seems to me that Naomi's perspective of her God began to change as the difficulties came rushing after her like waves. Naomi decides to identify herself when she gets back to Bethlehem and a few verses later as Mara, which means bitter. She sees the tragedy in her life that has changed her perspective on life where her name, Naomi, which means pleasant, she wants to change to bitter. She prefers a life of just bitterness rather than a life of pleasantness. I think it's easy to do, and I think we probably tend to do it when we come upon very difficult times. But there's something else about Naomi. She fails to see the things that she has right in front of her. At the end of this book, God incredibly turns the story around, and the townspeople realize that Ruth, who is the one daughter-in-law that stayed with her, was far better even than seven sons to her. But because of her turmoil, because of her grief, she was not able to see it. She was not able to see the gift that was right in front of her eyes. And instead, she convinces her daughters-in-law, tries to, to go back to their gods, go back to Moab, leave me to my own demise. And in some ways, I think the last verse that we read helps us to see that even Naomi misunderstood God. She sees God as having a heavy hand over her. Like he's just waiting to destroy her. Like one of those ants in a micro... Uh, in a, a magnifying glass, trying to burn her, just getting any opportunity he could to hurt her. She feels like this sovereign hand of a loving God is using the circumstances in her life to bring her not the greatest good, but the greatest evil. When in reality, we know the opposite is true. In fact, the closest I probably came to this idea, this, this possibility of destitution in even my life, was not even something that happened to me, but something that happened to somebody that we dearly cared about. About seven years ago, when we first moved into Colorado City, 
A couple joined us. Their names were Bob and Sherry. Bob and Sherry now lived in Chicago, and they had never really moved from their childhood home. In fact, as they got older, they, they only moved very little, and, and then it, I think they actually lived in their parents' house. But when they got married, they decided that they would buy their own house, of course. And so Bob moved one block over. Sherry moved one house up from their parents' homes. So they essentially lived in the same neighborhood all their childhood years. But when they found out about the ministry of Colorado City, they decided they wanted to get involved. And so Bob and Sherry decided to sell their house, which was a huge step, leave Chicago, the only place they've ever known, to come out to a place like Colorado City. And they did. They sold their house really, really quickly. God just allowed it to happen. They came out to Colorado City. They began working with us. They actually bought a house next to Colorado City. They weren't quite ready for that kind of move into Colorado City. So they ended up buying a house next to Colorado City, and they started working with us. And then one morning, one late night, actually early morning, probably about 2 in the morning, Bob got up to go let the dog out. It was, it was, um, he didn't go outside. And so Bob gets up and lets the dog out. And Sherry's waiting for Bob and the dog to come back, but he never comes back. She waits for a couple more minutes and never comes back. Where's Bob, she thinks. So she gets up and she goes out on the deck and she sees Bob, his lifeless body on the floor. And she's devastated. Bob had gotten up and for some reason he was not able to breathe at some point and he just sat there and he died alone. Eventually, a couple of weeks, a couple of days later, Sherry cremated his body and I remember the time very well. It was a difficult time for Sherry. Um, he was the only person she had ever really spent that much time with or, or had any kind of family relationship. They decided they wouldn't have any kids. Sherry had one brother left on this earth, and he wasn't really that available. And there was Sherry, left all by herself. But like Sherry and Naomi, their faith had really been put to the test through difficult trials and struggles. The devastation that came upon her um, was too much... It changed the way they began to understand who God was until later on Sherry began to come back and understand and, and uh, regain the orthodoxy of her faith. But I think that that's something that we can learn from these people. Like Naomi and like Sherry, sometimes circumstances begin to define who God is for us. And we, don't, we need God to be defined by what he says in his word. <clears throat> in the midst of suffering, we tend to draw wrong conclusions. But God has much better things for us. Consider what he says, or what Paul says about him in Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And he says this, And we know that all things work together for good of those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. Isn't that a great promise? No matter what difficulty you might be going through, we can be assured that all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. I think it's pretty amazing that even though we make a lot of mistakes, Naomi's perspective of God began to change. God still wants to use us as unlikely people to accomplish his perfect purpose in our lives. And this is, I think, where Ruth can come into the picture. Ruth is an amazing character on her own. She's what we would call a static character. She doesn't change. She's faithful from the beginning to the end, but Naomi does. She's dynamic. She kind of changes throughout the time, and at the end of the book, I think she's a changed woman. So let's read on verses 14 through 18 and talk about a little bit about Ruth next. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Amazingly enough, despite the destitution that I would say is overstated on Naomi's part, what 
Naomi said awaited anybody who came with her. I don't think it was true. In fact, the rest of the story bears that out. But despite all of that, all that she could possibly know, Orpah decides, yes, logic will get the better of me, and I'm going to take off. But Ruth decides she's going to cling. No matter the cost, she'll stick it out. And she says this. Um, Naomi says, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. Naomi, if you think about it, is literally telling Ruth to go back to your gods. And in order to convince her to do so, she overstates the destitution that awaits her. However, Ruth decides against all prospects of a happy life to choose servitude and widowhood for the benefit of her mother-in-law. Ruth makes a covenant with Naomi that is maybe the best representation of a human covenant that is anywhere in scripture or anywhere else we may have heard. But the Bible tells us that God has made a covenant with us too. The Bible tells us that God has made great promises to us. In Romans chapter 8, verse 38 and 39, listen to what Paul writes about God. He tells us that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any created thing will have the power to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Isn't that great news? Especially when you're going through the trenches of difficulty, especially when it seems like the waves of persecution are just coming against you. Nothing will separate you from the love of God. Now, Naomi was right in this sense that life could be very difficult for Ruth and any of her daughters-in-law. She could have the, But Naomi did something that I think is worth emulating. She loved her daughters-in-law. She could have treated them like second-class citizens, unhappy with her sons for ma marrying um, unclean women. She could have convinced his, her daughters-in-law to come back with the prospect of a happy life, only to learn that they would be her servants to take care of her every need. But for some reason, both daughters were willing to follow her back to Israel, regardless of the destitution that awaited all of them. You see, I think much of missions is played out in this realm. That is, the realm of relationships. Naomi had a long-standing relationship with these women. She was their mother-in-law, and they loved her. She spent lots of time with these women. They went through very difficult times together. They wept many tears. They probably laughed many laughs together. Naomi displays to us that sometimes mission or discipleship is not just having the data, but actually living that out. Albeit flawed at times, just like Naomi. It's spending time with people. It's weeping with them. It's welcoming them and loving them. See, Naomi can teach us a lot about missions because people often don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. What I love about Ruth is that she is the same way. She reminds us that God is a relational God. He providentially works through relationships. She ends up becoming as much a blessing to Naomi as Naomi had once been to her. Sometimes seasons in life take us to some pretty difficult times. 
And to have a friend, a daughter-in-law, a co-worker, a neighbor, to buffer the spirits back when you think nothing can help is just what you might need. And that's why I think the focus of my talk today is on ministry being is relationships. We are relational people. It's being able to see the hurting people in this world and being willing to lay down your life for them. Ruth represents the duty and responsibility of all of us as Christians to help when someone is struggling, to show them covenant faithfulness, and love them when it costs us a great deal. Who doesn't appreciate someone who is willing to bring them a meal when they're very sick, or willing to shovel their walks when it's snowing outside, or give them a Bible study when they can't make it to Sunday, or cook them a meal when their family is really sick? See, Ruth committed herself to a God that delighting, delighted in using unlikely people at unlikely times to accomplish his perfect purpose in their lives. But you see, Ruth's not really the hero of this story. The covenant God of Israel really is. Um, God has, though we often make mistakes and we often misrepresent God, he uses the character of Ruth to illustrate his own character. And that is, that he has covenant love for us. That no matter what happens, no matter the destitution that awaits him, he will even die for you at a cross. His name is Jesus. He loved us so much that he's willing to give up his own life so that you may have life. So that unlikely people could come into contact with him and, and see the perfect purposes of God worked out in their own lives. So Jesus is our hero. And Ruth exemplifies that in this story here. And I want to encourage you, find one person this week that you could be a hero to. That you could be somebody who develops a relationship for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of discipleship, despite the difficulty that may come, or despite the hardship that it may bring to you. Um, would you display that type of relationship to other people and to a lost world so that they can see who God is, albeit flawed at times, I understand that, and that God loves them. Let this be our ministry, a ministry of relationships. Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, I thank you for the opportunity to be able to come and speak here. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity to share a little bit about what you're doing in our community. And Lord, I thank you for the opportunity that you want a relationship with us. To you, it's not about just um, strict guidelines that as long as you can follow those things, then, then I'll be there. But Naomi proves to us that that's different. God is faithful despite us sometimes being faithless. And Lord, I pray that you would begin to work in our hearts to be able to reach out to people and accept a ministry of inconvenience when the time comes, Lord, so that people will come to know you and that we would fulfill the great commission for which we were saved into, Lord. That, God would love, that we would display the love of God in all that we do. And Lord, I pray that this... <clears throat> the, that the Lord's Supper that we're about to partake would be a display of that. That God gave his life for us so that we may have life and that we may have it abundantly. And we thank you for that. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.